All right, welcome back to the Fuse Show, everybody. My name is Bud. I'm an account executive here at Xfusion.io and co-host of the Fuse Show. I'm excited to be joined today by my guest, Matt Kleiman. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Cumulus Digital Systems, which spun out of Shell in 2018. Matt was previously the head of programs at Shell TechWorks, which he helped launch in 2013. Before joining Shell, Matt held commercial roles with early stage and established companies in the biotechnology and aerospace industries. Matt, thanks for being on the show, my friend. Hey, bud. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Hey, it's uh, it's awesome to have you. Now you have you have quite a quite a story. We were just talking a little bit off air, and I, I kind of mm -hmm. want to get into this right away because this is sure. not something that always happens. You left Shell, and and we'll get into Cumulus here in just a little bit. But you left Shell, uh, and now they are one of your your clients. And, and so you separated from them, and now you have a, a really good relationship with them still. Let's dive yes. into that a little bit before we actually start talking about what you do at Cumulus and, and, and how that's going. Because I think that is a very important uh, a thing to talk about when we have founders on this show that separate from their old uh, employer and it doesn't go well. How, do, how were you able to do that? Sure. Um... Yeah, it, we were, uh, we first identified the problem that we're solving with Cumulus, which we'll get into in a minute, but at the high level, it's uh, quality issues with high volume, mission critical manual work activities. We first identified that uh, because we were in a very privileged position inside Shell, which is the owner and operator of many facilities around the world. And we knew that if, if we just decided to, to get up and leave and, you know, take our ball and go home, uh, we would lose the benefit of having that privileged position uh, because we were essentially the customer of systems like ours before we started Cumulus and we saw the, the shortcomings of the systems that were on the market at the time. And, uh, and so we went through a very um, detailed process with with our colleagues in Shell to make sure everybody was fully comfortable with what we wanted to do, why it was a win-win both for, for us as the founders of the company, but more importantly for Shell, why, why it's in Shell's interest to have Cumulus spin out as an independent company. And so we took the time to go through that. Um, spin outs is not something that Shell has traditionally done. So uh, there were a few examples here and there, but there was a lot of education involved. Um, and a lot of discussion about how to do it in a way that was fair, uh, both to Shell and to the employees who were leaving. So, but we went through it. It was about uh, all told about an 18 month process, but it was worth it because when we, we left Shell, uh, Shell ultimately became an investor in Cumulus and is also one of our really good customers now. And it's a really, a very positive relationship and uh, we are the better for it. And it was worth going through that uh, taking that time to make sure we did it the right way and, and that everybody felt like uh, they were excited about this and there were no, no hurt feelings uh, as we left. Yeah, and you said in there, it, it wasn't just you, it was other employees that, that left Shell, right? Like there's four co-founders, uh, you're, yeah. you're one of four, and I believe through my, my reading that all four of you were with Shell, correct? And, That's and right. There's so, four studs that left Shell. I mean, that had to have, that had to have hurt them. Yeah. Well, ultimately, <clears throat> uh, nine people left Shell at the end of the day to to join Cumulus, 
And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to take the time to make sure that the the, the relevant people at Shell who we were working with and for were, were excited about this because we wanted all of them leaving to join us to to be a, to be a positive experience for everybody. Um, but yeah, we because Cumulus, uh, the Cumulus technology was first prototyped in 2016. So it was operating as a business within Shell for about two years before we left. So it was a going concern. There was my co-founders and a few other employees uh, who were operating this business from within Shell. And we, uh, we together made the determination that we could be more effective. We could attract outside venture capital uh, by leaving Shell and developing this independently. But as you said, if we, if nine of us got up and left, uh, that would have generated a lot of hurt feelings. And we, we just wanted to take the time to do it the right way. Awesome. Good for you. And, and that's a good, that's a good story. And, and I love to hear it. Like that's, that's the proper way to do it. And, yep. and now you have, I mean, just a, a tremendous, not only investor, but client behind you and, yep. and what a good relationship to have. So, uh, with that out of the way, let's get into the uh, right. nuts and bolts of cumulus. And there is a pun yep. in there and, and you guys will get that here in just a second. If you don't know about cumulus, let's get into the nuts and bolts of cumulus. What are you? What do you do? And then we'll get into why you actually started Cumulus and, and what the pain point was that you found. Sure. Uh, so we are an IoT platform. That's Internet of Things platform for quality assurance that provides real-time quality assurance and productivity tracking in industrial maintenance and construction. And we specifically focus on work that has three characteristics. Uh, it's manual work activities, so this is where people are doing the work. We're not involved in robotics or, or drones or anything else. This is skilled craftsmen and women in the field doing work. Uh, it's mission critical, meaning if the work is not done properly, there's a high cost. And that cost can be uh, safety, it could be environmental impact, it could be financial impact. Usually it's all three. And it's difficult to automate. So this is work that's being done in the field. We're not really focused on assembly lines or manufacturing, but work in the field where you're not gonna have, despite the best technology that exists today, you're not gonna have uh, automation uh, anytime soon. You're gonna be relying on these skilled craftspeople for the foreseeable future. And what we saw um, in our positions inside a shell was how uh, this type of work and failures in quality uh, for this uh, quality control for this type of work was responsible for a disproportionate number of accidents, of downtime and rework. Uh, in the U.S. construction industry generally, uh, more than 30% of work is rework and it costs uh, the industry billions and billions and billions of dollars each year uh, in labor, in, in downtime, in damages. Um, and about half that rework is just because of bad data and miscommunication and misinformation. And we saw that uh, no matter where we were in the world, whether it was in North America, in Asia, in Europe, you saw the same problems with uh, bad data quality, poor transparency between the owner and operator, the contractors on the site, and what the field, what information got to the field. And the systems that we saw at the time that were trying to address it were just, they were addressing the wrong problems. You had a lot of companies that would come to a large operator or a general contractor and say, plug us into all your data streams and we'll start generating value for you. 
the problem is the data is is all on paper or people in, inside people's heads. So there was no data to plug into. Right. It was all manual. So we really had to create a system that started from the ground up in creating this data, making it very easy for workers in the field and their supervisors and managers to create this data, track what they're doing. Um, and one of the big technology innovations was we saw that the um, tool manufacturers have started to put connectivity into their tools. So we're actually able to connect to the tools that they're using uh, and, and, and get data right off the tools about who did what, when they did it, and how well they did it. And this created that transparency that had a dramatic improvement in work quality and productivity. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, it, it, it just blows my mind what you can do. Like, I, I, I've done a little bit of research coming yeah. into this. And, um, like I was telling you just before we came on, I, I've been in the oil field for several years and, and I was on flowback, So I wasn't on mm -hmm. a big rig. I wasn't on that, but there yeah. was still lots of nuts and bolts. There was lots of hammering. The there's lots of, there's lots of yeah. that. Right. Yeah. It, and, if you went back in time 20, 30 years, probably done the same exact way it was done. It's done today. Yeah. And it, it just, it, it takes me back to one, one little story. Uh, you know, a few years back, we, we got called, um, I live in Colorado. We got called to a job in North Dakota. They were having a lot of issues and they're like, Hey, we got to send a crew up there. You guys are leaving in the morning. Uh, when you get up there, you're going to be rigging in, and you're rigging in until you're done, and you're opening this well. Like, yep. cool, great. So yep. it was me, uh, another guy who was a supervisor. We had a crew. There was a couple of brand new guys, right? So yep. we got our flowback unit set. I told these new guys, I'm like, you've got to pound this manway on, put the gasket on, mm -hmm. big metal gasket, yep. put it on. So you, you've got to pound this on. I'm like, okay, we've never done this before. I just kind of gave him a little tutorial and just make sure it's tight. And we just started yep. running, running line on the ground, right? Yep. My bad, I forgot about them, right? I'm just yep. like, they're, they're doing their job. I've got to get all this line on the ground. I've got to connect this well. <laughs> Come back about an hour and a half later, and I'm like, you guys are still up there, and they're just dripping sweat, right? And I mean, they just had this hammer wrench and they're this big, you know, eight pound sledgehammer. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I get up there and I check. And I mean, this thing is so tight, so yeah. tight. I'm like, oh my gosh, I felt so bad. They worked so yeah. hard on this thing. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for making it tight. Really appreciate that. Yeah. You guys did a really good job. It didn't need to be near that tight, right? Yeah. Which is like, yeah. holy cow, these poor guys. Yeah. Like if, if we had, oh, man. if we had a way to say this needs to be torqued at this, this much, you know, yep. <laughs> it would have made yeah, their job so are, much easier. People are surprised that in the bolt tightening application that we have, that we worry a lot more about over tightened uh, bolts and flanges and manway covers than we do about under tightened uh, or, or too loose bolts and manway covers. Because you could tell if something's loose, but mm -hmm. you're not feeling it. 
but you don't know if it's too tight and if it's cra- crushed that gasket. Yeah. So in your in your example, what our system would have done is one, each of the workers there would have had an app uh, or app on their phone. And it would have guided them through step by step. This is this is what you should do for each of these things. It would have uh, connected with the tools they were using uh, via Bluetooth, just like you'd connect your phone to your headset. And it would have automatically set all the torque values that they had to achieve uh, for that activity. It would have confirmed that they got the torque values within tolerance. And then you would have just, as a supervisor, you would have just been able to look on your computer or your own phone. Uh, and see, okay, this is this is where they are in their work. Uh, this is um, this is how far along they are. And hey, there's a flag here that some bolts were over tightened. Let's go fix those. Uh, or hopefully, because they were using our system, it wouldn't have been over tightened in the first place. But um, it would just would have brought made made that whole activity a whole lot easier. And uh, whether or not you had connectivity out in the field, it would have worked the same way. Yeah, and it would have cut their. You know, they, they were out there for an hour and a half when I was doing something else. It would take them down to 20 minutes yeah. of work, you know. And, exactly. And oh, a lot goodness. of our customers, a lot of our customers, you mentioned how a lot of these guys on your team were, were brand new. That problem is only getting worse now in the post-COVID environment as mm-hmm. uh, labor shortages everywhere. You hear about them in the news. You hear about the, the great uh, resignation and the great shift change. Uh, that's what a lot of our customers worry about is we have new men and women in the field who are not particularly experienced doing this work. And how do we make sure that they're doing their work properly? And that's that's what our system does really well. Nice. So, yeah, I kind of went on a little bit of a, a tangent there. So sorry that's about okay. that. But uh, how are these. How are these. Uh, tool companies setting their tools up for connectivity with you like are are they just are they putting computers in their tools are they how how is that working with you yeah so the tools are becoming commercially available uh that have this connectivity built in so take a wrench for example just a handheld torque wrench traditionally it's what's called a clicker bar torque wrench that's Mm -hmm. probably what your guys were using uh the tool manufacturers now the wrench at the outside basically looks the same. It works the same way, except it has a pressure sensor in the head and it has a Bluetooth radio in it. So it could have two-way communication with a mobile device. And tool manufacturers across the board are doing these types of retrofitting to their tools. So you can go to a Home Depot or a Lowe's and go to the tool aisle and you could find a drill, for example, that will talk to your iPhone um now in the most for the most part for the average homeowner it's kind of a gimmick that they have hey i have a connected tool that's great but what we do is we say okay if everybody on a job is using these tools and we can aggregate all this data together that gives us the real-time insight into the the progress and quality of work that you just wouldn't get otherwise and it allows us to get rid of all the paper so that's that's what we're doing that's what the commercial uh tool companies are doing they know this is the future. We're one of the first applications to actually do something useful with this connectivity. They almost they, they put the connectivity in first and then uh, wanted to figure out what, what to do with it. Uh, most of the tool manufacturers are using the connectivity more for inventory management and security. We're one of the first to use it from a, for a quality control purpose. Um, but yeah, they're, they're becoming more and more common and pretty soon 
um, almost all the tools uh, on the market will have some form of connectivity in it. Nice. So you, you said something there where you said that the tool manufacturers are, are seeing this as, mm-hmm. you know, really good. What about the people in the field? Because I know that there's there's a big disconnect in yeah. field workers and technology, right? Like there's yeah. there's a gap there. Like technology comes in and they're like, I've got my hammer. I'm good. You know, yeah. so how do you how do you shorten that gap? Sure. Great question, because we certainly see that and we were very aware of it um, as we design everything that we do is we know the user is somebody in the field who might not be the, uh, as technically savvy as our developers are who are building the, the tools to begin with, uh, the systems to begin with. Um, but what we do is we try very hard to make sure we are not changing how the worker does their job. So. Uh, the person who has to go out and tighten a bolt or inspect a weld or do a pressure test, the tools all work the same way as the tools they've been using for years. All they're doing differently is they have an app on their phone, which even the most uh, technically unsavvy workers know how to use a, a smartphone now. Pretty much they're, right. they're ubiquitous no matter where you are in the world. Um, when I first joined Shell in 2013, that was not the case, and you couldn't assume that. But now you can assume that right. pretty much everybody, nobody's going to be afraid of using their smartphone or a tablet. And, uh, and all they have to do is they connect the smartphone to the tool, just like they might be used to doing with their headphones or their car, um, and then do their work just like they would normally do it. Uh, you know, we're, we're not changing the engineering. We're not changing the physics. We're not getting in the way of their process. The system matches whatever their process is. All they're doing is they're no longer filling out paper and they are doing all this work um, exactly the same, but being guided by the phone or the tablet uh, through each step of the process. And they're taking photographs. They might be completing checklists, but these are all things they might have done on paper anyway. Um, They just do it with their phone, which people are used to doing now, um, even those who might not be as technically savvy as as, as others. Nice. Nice. So there's definitely some thought going into not only your tools, but how they're being used in the field for the, for the actual worker. That's, that's fantastic. Exactly. Um, you said something there about, they don't have to do their paperwork. It, it says on your website here Mm -hmm. that you, you can eliminate up to two plus hours of paperwork per joint. That is huge 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 uh yeah that that is probably as much as as proud of we as we are of the ability to eliminate leaks and to improve work quality what most of our customers especially the workers and the foremen and women uh what they get excited about is not having to fill out paper anymore Mm -hmm. and it is uh, it, w- it was surprising to us when we first started to learn about the industry when we were inside a shell, just how much paperwork is done for all these activities. And it's because they are mission critical, as I mentioned earlier, and the cost of a failure is is high, whether it's safety or financial or environmental. But the way the industry has traditionally dealt with these types of activities to avoid uh, avoid either prevent them happening 
or avoid liability for them happening once they do happen is to throw more and more paperwork at it. So not only does the, the worker in the field have to fill out paper, but then there's uh, their supervisor has to fill something out. And then there's an independent third party inspector who might come to fill something out. Each of them have to take the same piece of paper and make sure it gets from one person to another person to another person. Uh, these things get lost. They get uh, they become uh, illegible, even if they don't get lost. Right. Uh, and if the paperwork gets lost, it can't be signed off. The work has to be redone or at least reinspected. So the amount of time that our customers spend on paperwork before they use our system is, is mind-boggling, and the cost of that is mind-boggling. And, uh, and that's the feedback we get from customers is that, uh, yeah, we're, we're saving two hours per joint, um, and, and that could be $60, $70, $80 of labor hours per joint. Uh, depending on where you are in the world, and that 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 adds up to a lot of joints and a lot of cost savings. Yeah, it's it's huge, but not only not only that, but just just to stay kind of in the in the oil and gas before we head off onto something else. Just mm -hmm. the chain of custody, the chain of custody yeah. on on each of these, right? Mm -hmm. So you can you can have a whole well site or like a gas plant, right? Yeah. That this, you have a whole lot less paperwork, but I mean, you, you have this whole chain of custody for each of these, each of these joints where you know exactly yeah. who did what uh, on yeah. what date to what specs, everything was, was yeah. uh, torqued to and um, signed off on. And I, how much, how much time, personal time, ha have you saved? Do you know, I, or do you save? I mean, that um, it has to be huge with yeah. inspectors and, I mean, that type of thing. Yeah, so what we, we like to think of it as, uh, we're, the analogy we like is that we're creating an electronic medical record for each piece of equipment so that you can see, as you said, who touched it, when they touched it, what they did to the whole life of that piece of equipment. And what we have seen is that saves about 60% of the time that workers and supervisors and inspectors spend on data review and quality control and quality assurance. Uh, it's not because we're making the workers do their work any faster. Uh, that happens a little bit, but Really, as we said, we, 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 we integrate into their existing process. So someone who's turning a wrench is going to turn the wrench at the same speed, whether they're using uh, the smart, mm -hmm. uh, smart wrench or a traditional wrench. But where they save all that time is in all the preparation they, the, the teams do in the beginning before they go out to do work. Okay, these are, here's the drawings, here's what we have to do, here's the uh, engineering specifications. And then, and more importantly, everything afterwards, which is uh, aggregating all that paperwork, aggregating all the inspection reports, um, making sure uh, entering it into whatever system the, they're using to uh, manage this data. So traditionally, there'd be a clerk who would take the, all the paper reports from the field and then have to go type all that information into either an Excel spreadsheet or some other data management system 
And that was hours and hours and hours. And that's where we see that 60% reduction, um, which, uh, you know, the, 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 the value of that time is in the many millions of dollars. Yeah. We, we've never actually calculated it out across all of our customers, but um, it, it, it's huge. And then not to mention the rework. So if the U.S. construction average is about 30% work being done by uh, having been reworked, uh, we typically see with our customers that using our system, they get to under 10% rework. And that's an additional massive cost savings, making sure that that work is done right the first time instead of having to be redone. That has to be astronomical. I mean, just an astronomical amount of money. Okay, I'm, I'm going to throw out a couple more statistics and follow it up with sure. a question here. So sure. you've done over a million work completions um, across five different continents. Mm-hmm. You have zero leaks to date on startup. On startup. How yeah. long did it take for you guys to be able to um, to get a, a consensus in the industry to say that yeah, these these guys are legit? Like, do you understand what I'm saying there? How long? I, I understand. Okay. So, so. Consensus in the industry, I, I would say we're not there yet. That not not about being legit. Um, it's I can we're, we don't have a consensus in the industry yet. What the best mechanism is to solve these to solve the type of problems that we're solving, and we of course uh, have are very biased in favor of our own solution and think that we have a, a, a great offering and we'd like to see consensus around that. Um, but you are, at, but COVID really did accelerate that because before COVID, uh, I would say digitalization of industrial work, like the type of work that we're dealing with, it was seen as a nice to have or a novelty, not necessarily a necessity. And COVID changed everything because all of a sudden um, you couldn't have the same number of people at your plants anymore. There were restrictions on how many people were there. Uh, we had customers who were working at offshore platforms and they weren't allowed to send their QA inspectors out because they were quarantined and they had to use systems hours and others like ours to perform all that quality assurance remotely, which you would never have seen before. No. So, but now be out of necessity, you know, the, the old expression, necessity is the mother of invention and it, it, it forced people to adapt. And then just people getting used to being home on their computers, using uh, video conferencing, using mobile devices, um, just like in so many other industries, digital COVID really accelerated the acceptance of digitalization. So you start to see more of a consensus. I would say in the beginning of this interview, we talked about why we spend so much time making sure that our uh, departure from Shell was done the right way and in a friendly, cooperative way that gives us a lot of credibility out of the gate with a lot of other customers, given that we were we were them solving our own challenges when we first built the system. Uh, we, we didn't come out of this in an academic setting. We didn't come at this because uh, we were just searching for something to do. We, we had a problem that is common across industries and across markets. And we figured out a way to solve the problem that worked really well. And we created the company to share that with the broader industry. So that gives us a real leg up. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Okay, let's let's go ahead and, and get off the oil and gas stuff because not everybody All that's right. watching this are oil and gas nerds. Um, 
but uh, there's there's something big that's coming up here uh, that just just happened a couple days ago, mm-hmm. and that is the the passage of the um, uh, blah blah blah. Get in here. The infrastructure. The bill. infrastructure bill. That's right. Yeah. You are are very happy to see that come through. What does that yep. passage of the infrastructure bill mean for Cumulus? What What are you going to be doing with with well, the passage I, of this? Yeah, I think uh, first I'm very excited about it as a citizen, not as the CEO of Cumulus, because it's something that uh, it, it, people have been talking about the need for infrastructure and the problems with infrastructure across the country mm-hmm. uh, for. It feels like since I, I first started following politics, I was old enough to be aware of it. But certainly in the last decade, uh, it's been discussed over and over and over again. Is it something that both political parties agree on? Why can't we just get something done? And uh, and it, the problem just gets worse over time. As someone who I travel a lot uh, to other countries and I see examples of really bad infrastructure, but also really good infrastructure. And I want to see... The United States have the second to none in the world when it comes to infrastructure because our economy needs it. So as a citizen, I'm excited that our government was finally able to get over our divisions and do something that's uh, that's really important for the country. Uh, as the CEO of Cumulus, of course, we're excited. There, there's going to be a lot of construction, a lot of mission critical construction like we deal with, and we're excited to help our customers who are uh, either the operators of facilities or the contractors doing the, that are going to be doing the work uh, to help them do their work faster uh, and better and more efficiently um, as they begin working on these projects all over the country. Nice. Because you, you're not just in oil and gas. You are in big construction projects. You yeah. are in uh, um, infrastructure projects, obviously. Uh, you are... Yep. Like name name some of the other things that you guys you guys have your hands in yeah. and what you help in. We have customers uh, across a variety of industries. Obviously, given our backgrounds, oil and gas was the first market we went after. Uh, but uh, we have customers who are data center operators. We have customers that are pharmaceutical uh, drug manufacturers. We have customers that uh, manufacture fertilizer. Uh, we have customers that are large, uh, what are called EPCs, engineering, procurement, and construction companies. And they are doing work across industries, again, within that rubric of mission critical, high volume, difficult to automate. That's what we focused on. But that applies to a whole lot, a whole lot of work. And we actually just released a new, uh, a major expansion of our technology that takes it from focusing on bolted joints predominantly in oil and gas, but also in some of these other industries and makes it so that you can use it for almost any type of work activity, whether it's uh, inspecting a weld or a pressure test or electrical equipment installation. And it, it it's something that we're really excited about. We released, the ver- we released it in beta two weeks ago uh, and the timing couldn't be better with a move to more infrastructure because mm-hmm. all of those types of activities are gonna be required to, whether you're building roads, bridges, improving airports, improving the electric grid, whatever it might be, um, all of that involves mission-critical manual work activities uh, that we can help with. Nice. Now, you do you do stuff in, 
aerospace and aviation too. Is that what you were talking about with like electrical and and I yeah, mean, electrical a lot of, connections. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, on the electrical side, it's in a number of markets, but uh, but we see the need for electrical connections. One in data centers, obviously, they use a huge amount of electricity and and failures in their electrical systems lead to downtime, which is hugely expensive. Uh, but also for energy storage, uh, particularly batteries that are attached to large uh, renewable power generation, whether it's solar or wind, uh, those are very critical electrical connections. And, and then the connections that, that integrate those energy storage facilities with the rest of the grid, um, also critical work to be done properly when it's first constructed. And you, you guys are going to be everywhere. That's our hope. That's yes, our sir. That's awesome. Yep. That's awesome. All right. So let's let's kind of go back to the structure of uh, of Cumulus and and how you guys are are kind of built and ran. Um, there's we we talked about the four of you that kind of broke away. There's nine of you that left Shell, but there's there's four of yeah. you that are kind of the co-founders. Um. And and this always I like to talk about this when there's when there's either a solopreneur or more yeah. than than two founders because it's yeah. most oftentimes there's there's two founders and yeah. and that's kind of that that's kind of the general you know how how things are ran how do you guys run things with with four different co-founders how is the kind of the structure set up there around that. Sure. Um, great, great question. Uh, and we had the benefit before we started Cumulus of being an operating business within another company. So the business was already ongoing. So we, so we didn't have to build everything from scratch. But basically, the way it works is that um, there's myself, of course, as the CEO of the company, I'm I answer to our board of directors, who are mostly our investors. Um, and then my my co-founders each have the their areas of expertise that they brought from their backgrounds. Um, so one is in charge of sales and business development. One is in charge of business operations, uh, and and my others are in charge of uh, on the technical side as our chief technical officer and VP of software. So everybody has their skills and expertise, and then over time, as we build as we're building the company, we're supplementing our own backgrounds and skills with new hires, new people that we bring into the company uh, to fill gaps that that didn't exist before as we grow. But we were very fortunate that we didn't have a lot of overlap where uh, two of us were good at the exact same things. We're we're all, we have things that we're good at, things that we're not good at, and it fits together uh, really nicely in as a cohesive team that uh, where we could each focus on our areas of responsibility, all ultimately working together for the common goal of building Cumulus. That's awesome. And then when when there is more than than two, I, I like to ask this question: like you're obviously the CEO, mm-hmm. um, you're you're the executive officer. So I'm I'm guessing mm-hmm. that a lot of the the biggest decisions have to hit your desk, and you have to make a decision. Yep. With the yep. other co-founders there, how do you handle that? Do you do you get in a big group and ask, hey, we have this? Do you get their feedback? Or does it just land on you? Do they trust you to make those decisions? How how do you handle those big decisions? 
Sure. Um, I, I, I read once, I forgot where I can't attribute it, that the C, a CEO of a company has four jobs to set the strategy of the company, to make sure, uh, to raise capital, to make sure the company is solvent to, and has the capital necessary to execute that strategy, to make sure that the, uh, to, the right people are in the right jobs, and then to hold those people accountable, those mm -hmm. four things. Those are the four things that I, I reserve as ultimately my decision. Everything else I delegate to the team and I will support and I will make sure people have, uh, you know, need be, they help uh, help them, but also hold them accountable for making sure they're doing their 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 teams are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but I try not to get in everybody's business outside of the realm of what should be my responsibility as a CEO. So I try to be conscious of that. Uh, we have, I also though believe in transparency mm -hmm. and discussion. I don't believe in consensus, but I believe in giving everybody a say. So among my co-founders, uh, yeah, we talk about oh, any major decision that has to come up. We, of course, we talk about it. We meet all the time. When we were all together in person all the time, it was a lot easier to talk all the time, sure. but we still talk virtually frequently and have formal management team meetings uh, weekly. Uh, yeah, where we talk about everything, um, but in terms of who's ultimately responsible for the decision in those four areas I mentioned, that's where I'm, I'm ultimately responsible, uh, where things that are outside of that, of those four things that are really in my co-founders um, uh, areas, they will can ultimately make the decision and consult. We consult each other. We talk about it. Um, but but people but but that's where decision making lies. And that, that's how it's done in Cumulus. I love it. So stay in your lane, and you know your lane. Even even the CEO has a lane, and he has to stay in it. Yeah, everybody every, everybody has a lane, but it's a small team. We're you know sure. we're, we're twenty five people total. Um, I do think transparency is very important. So for example, yeah. uh, after we have board meetings every other month, we have one next week. Every after every board meeting, I go through the board slides with the entire team, and I intend to do that no matter how big we are, whether it's twenty five people or one hundred and twenty five people, and I go through them. And obviously anything that's, you know, about HR, things like that has to be redacted, but sure. all the financials, all the planning, everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, go through it all with the whole team and talk about what the board was happy about, what the board was not happy about, where the areas of concern. Um, also, the whole team is aware of milestones that we need to hit in order to um, and to have another, uh, you know, to, to succeed in our next fundraising round. And I think it's important that everybody understands that and mm -hmm. people feel more ownership of the company, more ownership of the wins and the losses. Uh, if, if you're, if you're transparent with them, I also do things like I send out every Sunday night, I send out an email to the team. Hey, this is what's going on this week. This is what's on my mind. This is what's on some other members of the team's mind. Um, maybe talk about a podcast that I listened to that that was particularly relevant to some something going on. Just keep the lines of communication open, especially as we move more virtual. Um, but most important, be transparent, as transparent as you legally can be. Absolutely. In order to have everybody on the team uh, know what's going on. Yeah. No, I think that's 
I think that's great. So you have 25 people on your team. How are you guys? You're, you're a global company. How is your team made up? Where, where are you guys all at? So for the most part, with a few exceptions, the technical team is based in Boston. Uh, and the commercial team is based in Houston. And there's okay. a few, few exceptions um, to that. Uh, so that, that's how we divide the world. We also have people who are remote in different parts of the world, developers, uh, customer success folks who are remote. But that's where our two centers of gravity are. As we come out of COVID, we do plan to bring people on in some of our key geographies. Uh, Southeast Asia, for example, we have a lot of our customers in Singapore and Malaysia and other countries in that region. India is a big market for us. And, um, and it's been interesting and challenging serving them from the US in, when we can't travel there. And as soon as things open up a little bit more, we want to put people in the, uh, on the ground in those regions. But right now, Boston, Houston, those are our two, um, our, our two focus areas from a people on the ground perspective. Nice. Are you excited to hear that everything is opening up a little bit? Or are you getting ready to fly uh, away? I can't wait. I, I had the opportunity to go to Dubai in July to meet with uh, one of our partners there. And uh, that was my first international trip since COVID. And uh, from a weather perspective, Dubai, Middle East in July is about the worst time you can go. <laughs> but I didn't care. It was great. Don't even care. Uh, get, getting out meeting people in person and and having those across the table discussions even if we were wearing masks um it's just so much better i, I think it's what video has done and ena enabled companies like ours to just survive and get by and it's phenomenal and you know i have a daughter who's in second grade and what she was able to do during shutdown and, and keep going through class but it does not replace in-person no. engagement at all i'm a huge believer in face-to-face -face discussions, both with people who work at Cumulus, but also our customers and partners. And um, actually one of my co-founders is in Dubai right now. Uh, we're very excited to see Southeast Asia starting to take the first step towards opening up. As I mentioned, that's a big, uh, a, a big focus area for us. And, um, and also obviously Europe and, and other parts of the world. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in in that as well like my there's i hear people say that we're fine like this we can stay like this forever and i'm like no we we just we can't we're we're herd we're, we're pack animals we're we're herd mentality yep. we have to be together and yep. if this goes on yep. too long we're just not going to do well so i'm excited to be able to go places and, and see people also yes. yeah yeah exactly and uh and also you know and, and just to have this this the spontaneity and serendipity of in-person mm -hmm. connections. Um, we we went to our first trade show, one of our first trade shows a few weeks ago, in-person trade shows that we've gone to since uh, since COVID. And even though it wasn't as well attended as it was in years past because not everybody's traveling yet, but just the opportunity to be there with potential customers. And there were there are at least two uh, opportunities that we have now that came from that trade show that they would never, they, they were completely uh, spontaneous. They were with customers and industries that were completely orthogonal to what we typically do. But because we had a table there, they came across it, 
the problem, the, the solution resonated and hopefully it turns into something, but it's those sorts of things that just don't happen virtually. Right. Right. And, and you just get a better sense of the person. Yeah, like, exactly. Like this conversation would probably be quite a bit different if, if we were in the same room. The studio, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, yep. It's just, it's just different. So, yep. Right. Um, well, I'm I'm excited for you to travel and and go see where you're you're actually going to be working and and get some boots on the ground over there and and get some people hired. That that'll be awesome for you. Um, Thank you. What what do you see is your biggest pain point for your company? But not only that, but the biggest pain point for your industry. Where does your industry fall short right now? Um, good question. I think the biggest pain point. We, I don't know if it's a pain point, but really a challenge that we have and that the industry has is uh, just a general conservatism in the industry about the adoption of new technologies um, and, the, and doing something new. Uh, as we talked about before, mm-hmm. COVID certainly helped accelerate a lot of that change, but you still see it over and over and over again of the attitude of, well, this is the way the person who had this job before me did it and before him and before her and before him. And I'm just going to do it the same way and not rock the boat or I'm not going to take risk or I don't see enough value of of doing of trying something new. So that that's for a lot of companies like ours. That's the biggest challenge in getting adoption of our systems. Um, and then and then. The, the the flip side of that is uh, a, a fear of trying new things. Um, uh, you know, a fear something has to be a success in order to try something new or else it's a failure among the larger companies who are looking for new technologies. Um, so that's what we would like to see is is just more acceptance. And I think as as we come out of COVID, as more technically uh, tech native people come into a lot of the decision making roles that will change over time, but that that is our our biggest challenge. I would think that, like I, I can see, I mean, because I asked that question earlier, just with like workers on the ground not wanting to change. Yeah, but yeah, I would think that with companies, they would see this because I mean, as soon as I started looking into this, I was like, man, there is huge potential for not only cost savings but yep. but safety savings as well like yeah yep. it didn't take me but five minutes looking into this to see like this this could be huge I, w- I would think that that just wouldn't be that hard of a sell but you're finding uh, that it is well for for people who are open to to try new things they, they see exactly what you see and, and that's why we've had the success that we've had to date but but you still see a lot of people in the industry um, there and there are lots of studies about this. You know, despite all these advancements, construction generally is one of the least uh, penetrated by digitalization and technology yeah. adoption among uh, all, all the different industries you could think of. Uh, so you still have a lot of people who you, know, you have the classic technology adoption curve you have. Uh, the the early adopters, the, in, the innovators, the early adopter, adopters, fast followers, and then the laggards. 
And uh, in construction and in industry, uh, the laggards is a pretty big, uh, yeah. pretty big group who are just waiting and seeing. Well, when when enough other people do it, we'll do it too. Um, and that just doesn't apply to Cumulus. That applies to everybody, everybody. who's trying to work to modernize the industry. Um, so that that but that that's a challenge, and that's something that we as technology companies have to be cognizant of and, and make it easier for customers to go on that journey and 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 to see to see the value immediately uh, when they start using it. Yeah. Well, just keep some of your case studies with you and exactly. show them. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess I can see that that. I mean, I, I I came into this job kind of kicking and screaming as well, so yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it is what it is. Yep. <laughs> so yep. you said you had you said you had a a little one, second grade. Mm-hmm. Yep. What what do you what do you like to do to kind of chill? I mean, you you've got a pretty big job, you've got a pretty big yeah. job ahead of you. What do you like to do to chill? You just like to hang out with your with your little one and your your wife, or yeah. Spending time with the family, um, really, you know, depending on the season, uh, doing things outdoors as much as possible. So whether it's skiing and looking forward to ski season starting soon uh, in the summer, swimming, playing tennis, things like that. Um, Just spending time together as a family. I personally am a huge reader. Uh, So, you know, that's I'm an introvert by nature and extrovert by practice. So my real happy place is sitting uh, at home with a book and reading, um, you know, maybe by a fi- the fire in the fireplace. But uh, but yeah, just spending time with family and and being outdoors, doing things together as much as possible. Nice. Well, you would have had me fooled. I, I wouldn't have guessed you as an introvert there, buddy. Uh, you're doing fantastic. Thank you. Well. I've I've really enjoyed this. Um, I love hearing about what you're yeah, doing at Cumulus, um, and and I think you've got big things coming. Um, Thank you. I, I hope that you can you can find some big things with with this infrastructure, uh, Bill. I, I hope that you can find some really really good things coming up overseas, um, and and I hope this thing just blows up for you because I know that in the in the oil and gas industry in you know especially i mean because that's that's just kind of where my heart is um and it always will be uh you know i i hope that that you just you just keep growing and and expanding um i love how you left shell i i love i i love just the the ethical way that you did that and how you're running your business and and i wish nothing but good for you so as we close this out, um, I'm going to ask you the same couple questions that I ask everybody that is on this, this program. Um, and those two, the first one of which is, what advice would you give to founders or soon-to-be founders that are going to watch this program? Uh, great question. Um, I would say two things. One, uh, it is going to be, you're going to have the most, terrible the most difficult time of your career but also the most joyful time of your career and know that for every trough um there's a peak that comes after it and that could be day by day um 
So you have to be ready for that and you have to have the stomach for it. But it is that's the entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that is perseverance. If you're not ready, if you don't believe in what you're doing and you're not ready to persevere through it, um, it's going to be really hard to manage those peaks and troughs. Uh, so just 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 be ready for it and embrace it as, as part of the journey. You have a special way of of managing the peaks and troughs or or is it just being ready? It's just being it's just keeping perspective and, and being ready and knowing that. Um, so I, I remember early in my career before I became an entrepreneur, um, you know, I, you know, screwing up at, 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 at my first jobs and, and making big mistakes. And I remember my, you know, at the time, it just felt like the worst thing that could happen. Oh my God, this is terrible. This is, I'm going to be fired. This is, this is awful. And I remember my dad giving me the advice that said, and, and he said, you know, when you, when you zoom out, you're not in, in 10 years, you're not even going to remember what this mistake was. It might seem like the worst thing you've ever done, but you're not even going to remember it in 10 years. And that's true. I have no idea what those mistakes were anymore. And having that perspective that, uh, that, that as bad as things can be, it is very rarely the end of the world, almost never. Um, and part of that is having the right support system at home, whether it's family or friends, and knowing that, you know what, it could all come crashing down. Uh, but one, that will not be the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And and that, that gives you the perspective to say, well, let's just take it one step at a time and and figure it out and move and move along. And and then a day, a week, a month later, things are things are working again and you have one of those peak days. And you just have to be ready for it and and know that as you zoom out it starts to look like a much more level ocean. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And then the final question is, what is the best way for our viewers to get in touch with you if they so choose? Uh, probably the easiest way is on LinkedIn. So I, I'm active there. Please feel free to reach out. Uh, Matthew Kleiman, Cumulus, uh, or send me an email, matt at CumulusDS, as in digital systems. So Cumulus, the letter D is in David, the letter S as in sierra.com uh either way is a great way to get in touch with me awesome well matt thank you so much for being on the show it was super enjoyable um I, I love what you have going on over there man keep it up thanks but i appreciate it thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today i really enjoyed it